Hi, and welcome. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. For those of you not familiar with The Big Schmear, this podcast is all about Jewish food. I want to explore a wide range of topics that I hope you'll find interesting. Some ideas on my topic list include holiday foods, Israeli food, Jewish food trends, the politics of food, the history of Jewish food, farming and food sustainability, and favorite Jewish restaurants around the world. I'll be interviewing chefs, food authors and critics, and quirky folks who love to cook and talk about Jewish food. I want to keep this podcast lively, and I'm hoping you'll help by sending me your ideas for future shows. You can reach me at this email address, beth at thebigschmear.com. Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. Be sure to keep this address handy. I'll have recipes to send out to you and special giveaways that I'll be sharing with you. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, where you can download episodes of the podcast. I'm excited about the opportunity to sit down with the breakfast queen, Ina Pinkney. So let me start by telling you a little bit about her. Ina Pinkney is a Chicago legend of the tastiest kind. Known as the Breakfast Queen, she fed Chicagoans for 33 years, first out of a small bakery and then from her beloved restaurant in the West Loop, which she closed in December of 2013. An undeniably outstanding chef and astute businesswoman, Ina is so much more. She's a community leader, a pioneer, a television personality, a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, the subject of an award-winning documentary called Breakfast at Ina's, which, by the way, is a fantastic film, and she's the author of a memoir cookbook called Ina's Kitchen. Most importantly, she's the rare sort of person who's found a way to transform her passion into a joy that extended to an entire city and beyond. Welcome, Ina. I'm so happy you could join me today. I think I need to add something to that bio because you said you'd like to interview quirky people. I would fit right into that category. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm right on target. Absolutely with me you are. I thought maybe a good place to start would be, um, being that this is a podcast about Jewish food, I wonder if you could tell me what what is Jewish food to you? Well, I grew up in a kosher home in Brooklyn. In 1940, I was born in 1943. And so I didn't have a sense of what Jewish food was. I only knew what we did in the house. And when I went to my Aunt Susie's house, who did not keep kosher, and I could have lasagna with meat and cheese in it and not die, I thought, oh, there's something <laughs> going on out here that I don't need to know about. <laughs> and I remember the first time I ever had a BLT with my mother when I was eight years old when we were shopping at S. Klein in New York. And I looked at her and I said, oh, my God, what else are they keeping from us? <laughs> <laughs> but Jewish food was comfort for me when the Shabbos candles were lit on Friday night and when the roast chicken was in the oven and when there was holiday. And my mother, who was not a good cook, nor was she an enthusiastic cook, but when she would lay out the table, everything tasted good and everything made me feel like this is a good place to be right now. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, I've got some of those memories myself. Lots of roast chicken. Lots. And my mother also wasn't a great cook. But but uh, her roast chicken was good. Yeah, see, and we never had anything fresh and green. I mean, there was a wedge uh, iceberg. But oh, yeah. I never saw real vegetables. 
We it was a can. Yep. Um, and that's all we really knew. And I didn't even know what salt was until I was older. We, everything was sort of the same flavor. Yeah. That's Except the brisket. Brisket was good. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how did you become involved in the food business? Because everybody's got food memories, good, bad, mm-hmm. ugly, whatever. But they don't all wind up in the restaurant business and working with food every single day. So what was your path? How did you wind up there? Well, I had polio when I was 18 months old in 1944. And by the time I was six, I already knew I was never going to fit in. Now, that didn't mean I didn't try to fit in. And the fact that I had 21 jobs in my life and I was fired from 19 of them tells you I really (laughs) did try to fit in. And it was in 1980. I had moved here from New York in 1977. And I was walking along the street, and I stepped on a piece of the Reader newspaper. And it was an ad for a balloon delivery service. And I thought, boy, isn't this interesting? People send you strippers. They send you singing (laughs) telegrams. And they send you balloons for your birthday. But nobody sends you a cake. And I went up to the roof deck of the building I was living in, and I started to talk to my neighbors, and I said, what would you think of a service where a tuxedoed butler would bring a cake to you? And instead of writing on the cake, there'd be a sparkler and then maybe a parchment scroll in calligraphy that said, happy birthday, Beth. We think you're the best friend we ever had. And everybody went, oh, my God, that is really good. So I went down to my apartment. And I started to write down all the things I thought I needed to do to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And I was reading the New York Times Magazine section, and Craig Claiborne had a recipe in there for a chocolate cake with no flour in it. The first flourless chocolate cake. And I thought, oh, my God, this would be the cake for my surprise birthday cake delivery service. Because at that time in Chicago in the 80s, a lot of Austrian, Hungarian, buttercream, kirschwasser, mm-hmm. not my kind of cake. And I thought, oh my, I'll just make this cake and it'll be what I serve. Well, I had never baked. I never separated an egg. I never beat an <laughs> egg white. I never melted chocolate. So of course I made this cake and it didn't come out at all. So I went out and I bought enough ingredients for three more cakes thinking if I can't solve this, uh-huh. then I'll find another cake. By the third keg, the fourth one actually, I was able to do it. And I realized at that moment, if you can read, you can bake. (laughs) So I was playing with this cake and the phone rang and it was a neighbor. Hi, Ina, I saw you upstairs on the roof and I heard what you said. You don't know me, but I got your number from the doorman and I'd like to order your service for Friday. Oh my God. This was Sunday night. I was starting what turned out to be the last of my 21 jobs the next morning. And I said, sure, because that's what entrepreneurs do. They say yes, and then they figure it out. (laughs) So Thursday night, I did the cake. The fabulous husband put on a tuxedo, did the calligraphy on the note, and he went downtown on LaSalle Street and delivered it to a law firm. And that night, I came home from work. How was it? He said it was fine. The phone rang, and it was Diane. I said, Diane, you know you were the first. Tell me everything good, everything bad. She said it was wonderful, it was exciting, it was interesting, it was fun. We ate this fabulous cake, and there was nothing left, but the guy still had the scroll to take home to his wife, and it was amazing. And I said, what was bad? She said, oh, you don't charge enough. Oh, my. And it took off like wildfire. 
You were ahead of your time. Like wildfire. That From those 10 people, it was all over. And Wally Phillips called me on the air and ordered it for Irv Cups in it. I mean, it was wild. And I would bake at night, have out of these out-of-work actors show up at my office at lunchtime to pick <laughs> up all these cakes and take them off to their you know, yeah. appointed rounds. And, oh, yeah, I got fired from that job, too. And then um, somebody called and asked if they could just have the cake. And I went, oh, yeah. And he said, what else do you do? And I said, what else do you want? And he described this cake that his grandma made, this very soft crumb made with sour cream, he thought, cinnamon and brown sugar and pecans. And I knew what he was talking about. A recipe that I had saved from someone at one of my jobs. Now, I never made anything. I never made one thing, but I saved all the recipes. And I knew that was the recipe he wanted. And sure enough, it was. And it was on the counter at my restaurant till the day we closed. And that's, it's in the book. That's crazy. And what's and what's the recipe called? Sour cream coffee cake. Of course. Somebody in everybody's family made this cake at one point. Everybody I know says, oh, my aunt made that, my grandma made that. Incredible. And so I started a business from one cake. <laughs> and so one would assume that that was the start of your pathway to a restaurant, although making a cake and having that delivered is still a long way from... A restaurant. So every single day, I would go out to have breakfast with my husband. I, I had a bakery, not a retail. I didn't believe in making something today that might not be fresh tomorrow, so it was special order. Ah. So I had a storefront. And in the morning, we would have to go and look at the back door of our house where there was a list of restaurants we could stop at for breakfast. And if we wanted really good pancakes, we could go to two. Mm-hmm. If we wanted good French toast, maybe one. If we wanted a good omelet, maybe three. We had to figure out what to eat before we left the house. Oh, that's not fun. And remember, it was the 80s. Coffee was insipid everywhere. <laughs> so it was a challenge. And after nine years, I had this bakery, and I had big wholesale accounts, and I was cook baking every day. I said to him, oh, my God, this food is so bad. Why can't anybody make a decent breakfast? And he said, so, Ina... Every day you go to that place and you play with butterflower, sugar, and eggs. What are you eating? And I went, oh, yeah, butterflower, sugar, (laughs) and eggs. And I said, you know what? I'm going to open a breakfast restaurant, and I'm going to have food there that nobody has ever, ever, ever served for breakfast. And I did. Great story. (laughs) And, and And you did it really well. I did it really, really well. Yeah, we, I think we did it better than anybody. We really, we changed the culture of breakfast and we changed the landscape of what people ate for breakfast with very big flavors. 1990, we were doing garlic roasted potatoes and we were doing a vegetable hash with cumin and garlic and Tabasco. We started bringing up the whole flavor profile of food. When people would walk in, you could tell they were the, from the old school, I'll have two eggs over easy hash browns and whole wheat toast. And I go, oh, you are in the wrong place. <laughs> so what you're talking about sounds like great food. I'm sure people are already listening and very hungry. But those things don't sound to me in the traditional sense as Jewish food. And yet I I know that your place was the go-to place for people to go for break the fast or sell, meet friends and family after Jewish life cycle events. And so why do you think that is? I think we extended that kind of Hamisha hospitality 
when people walked in the door, they were acknowledged. Uh, it was also important to me, since I was not home making holiday for myself, that I bring it into the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, for example, Passover. We made sure that we had a Passover menu, and we asked people to make reservations and bring their families. Oh. And they did their own Seder right there. Are you and kidding? Right there. They would make their own family, their own Seder, and it was perfect. I made the food. They made the Seder. Wow. So I would hear all of these beautiful words being spoken around the restaurant, uh-huh. and it filled my soul because I couldn't have a Seder. I was busy cooking for other people. Right. Same thing with Rosh Hashanah. Same thing. You know, and as people aged and they downsized and elders couldn't make the meal mm-hmm. anymore and they couldn't have 30 people in their apartment, they could come to me and right. I could be the Zadie. How wonderful. Yeah, uh, it was. Oh, it was. So we're talking about Jewish holidays, and I'm wondering, do you have a favorite Jewish holiday meal story or two? Yes. Passover for me was was always important. When, when Bill and I lived in New York City, we had a remarkable family of friends. And we would make a Passover Seder, and I would send the recipes to each person that they were going to be making so they would understand the limitations, the dietary restrictions, and the reason behind the dishes. And people would bring a dish and everybody, they would have to explain what it was uh-huh. and how they made it. So my feeling about Passover and my friends and people who were not Jewish participating in a way that was meaningful, I think that's my favorite meal of all time. Sounds really lovely. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry that I didn't get to spend <laughs> Passover at your restaurant. was a good thing. Yeah, well, oh, gee. So we were talking earlier about the fact that you grew up in a kosher household and there were a lot of things, a lot of foods that you didn't know about. I'm guessing that you could tell me what the most unusual food was, maybe that you had on a dare. Was there some kind of food that was maybe taboo for you in some way, might not have even been a kosher issue, that you found yourself eating and it either turned out great or it didn't, but... I think probably foie gras. (laughs) I know I'm going to the high end, but I remember them telling me what it was and how it was harvested from the poor goose. And I was at the Four Seasons restaurant in New York, the one that just closed. Uh And um, it was a long time ago. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't know about this. You know, I don't know. But I tasted it, and then I fell in love with it. The other story was the oysters. Now, oysters were completely unknown to me. And funny, it happened at the same restaurant. I was working for a man who said, we have to go over to the Four Seasons and plan a lunch for a Japanese wine company. He was a restaurant consultant. We talked about what we would do, and my idea was let's use their wines in every course. And the chef said, well, we we make oysters poached in champagne and 30 herbs. And my boss, George, said, you know, that's good. We can use a champagne and that we can use wine in that. Uh So the chef said to the guy, the server, please bring us an order of oysters. At that moment, I stopped hearing anything. And I'm (laughs) thinking, what am I going to do when they arrive? I really kind of zoned, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm terrified. And they they arrived, and there were six of them. There were four of us at the table sitting in a booth. And George took one, 
chef said he passed. The other owner of the Four uh-huh. Seasons took one. So now there's four left. And George keeps elbowing me, saying, you uh, taste it. And he keeps talking. And I go, oh, yeah. And, I, <laughs> and I'm avoiding it at all cost until there was no place to run and no place to hide. <laughs> and I picked up the oyster and I ate it. And it was the best thing I had ever tasted in my life. And then, of course, my thought was, how do I eat the other three without them noticing? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Well, I think we're just about out of time. But before we close, I want to have you tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and your cookbook and all those kinds of things. Thank you. Um, Breakfastqueen.com is the website, and they can sign up for my newsletter, which I have been writing now for 25 years, the first of every month. And so it's a wonderful newsletter filled with information that you may never know, like the full moon every month. I write about the full moon every month. I don't, I don't know why, but I do. <laughs> and so that's a good way to connect with me because it's an email and you can always stop it when you want to. The other thing is my book, Ina's Kitchen. I'm so proud of this book because it has all of the recipes from the restaurant. And it has all the stories that I was unable to tell. You know, there was no room at the table for my story when you came to eat. Mm-hmm. So it's all about you there. And this book is all about how did I go from kosher home in Brooklyn to breakfast royalty? It's a lovely book. And Thank you. The, and the recipes are, are easy. fantastic. And easy. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, that brings me to the end of part one of the Big Schmear's episode on hanging out with the breakfast queen, Ina Pinkney. Be sure to download part two, where we'll continue our conversation about Jewish food. Better yet, subscribe to The Big Schmear so you don't miss any of our podcasts. And don't forget to write to Beth at TheBigSchmear.com. Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. To let me know what topics or guests you're interested in hearing on the podcast. Writing to me can also be a way to find out about our giveaways and free recipes. Last but not least check out my website, thebigschmear.com, where you can download episodes of the podcast. And Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. Ina, I can't wait to hear more about what you're up to these days. We'll cover that and probably a lot more in the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to The Big Schmear. Our engineer is Mary Mazurik, and our theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo. This music can be heard on their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to let me know what you think of The Big Schmear. Write to me at beth at thebigschmear.com. <laughs> <laughs>